I'm Dennis Tuberg, and this is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, I've got a terrific show lined up for you today. Joining me momentarily in the second segment of today's program is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Many of you longer-term listeners will recognize Dr. Schilling's name. Uh, If you've been a Forbes reader for any length of time, you'll also recognize his name. He has been a Forbes columnist for well over 40 years. Looking forward to chatting with him about his take on the markets and the economy and what you should be doing with your money. And before I get into what I want to talk about in this segment, let me ask you if you have gone to the App Store to download the Your RLA app yet. All you have to do is go to the App Store, whether you have an iPhone or you have a Droid, simply go to the App Store and search Your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and uh, you'll get our app, and that has all of our free educational resources on it. The app is free. All the resources are also free. I would encourage you to do that. We live in some crazy times, economically speaking, and uh, certainly that will affect investing markets. So if you're aspiring to a comfortable, stress-free retirement, or maybe you're already retired, the information that we deliver to you every week on the app for free, I think you'll find to be valuable. Also, in the interest of education this month, I'm offering a free report titled Bubble Watch and Surviving a Bubble Bust. If you've not yet requested your free copy of this report, All you have to do is visit requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com, and we'll be glad to send you out your complimentary copy. And finally, we also have educational resources available at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. I'd encourage you to check that out as well. So I have a question for you to start with on this week's program. Does it seem to you that when it comes to financial markets, the economy, maybe the political system, does it seem that many things are broken? Well, past radio guest here on the program, John Malden, who publishes a very widely read weekly newsletter titled Thoughts from the Frontline, noted last week in his newsletter that Everything is broken. Now, this is an observation that I've been making in the weekly newsletter Portfolio Watch for a long time and here on the radio program, although I haven't used the word broken to describe the current climate. I have chosen to use the word artificial. And of course, in my humble opinion, I think artificial more accurately describes the situation. Malden, in his piece, points out many things that, in his view, are broken, and I certainly agree with Mr. Malden. And I want to give you just a bit from Mr. Malden's piece as it relates to mortgage rates. He said, Obviously, lenders take more risk on mortgages than they do when buying treasury bonds. Of course, that's true. I mean, the likelihood of the government defaulting on debt is much lower than someone not paying their mortgage. So when 
banks buy treasury bonds, the risk is much lower than when they loan Mr. or Mrs. Smith money to buy a home, when they give them a mortgage. So you would expect mortgage rates to be higher, and they are. But Malden asked, but does that risk really swing so wildly? Should it double or fall by half in only a few years' time? Of course not. But that's what has happened, and there's no mystery why. Mortgage spreads collapsed in 2009 and again in 2020 because the Federal Reserve bought truckloads of mortgage-backed securities. I would make the point, using the word artificial again, that this was artificial demand. Malden points out that economic fundamentals didn't do this. Rather, quote, a committee decided to encourage home purchases and did so by making it cheaper to finance those purchases. The predictable result is a housing boom, or, in the current case, amplification of a boom that was already happening for demographic reasons and other reasons. You know, Yahoo Finance published an article this past week along these lines, and the article starts out by saying this housing rally is getting its first big test. Mortgage rates have actually increased by about a half a percent. And the article points out what a difference that makes when it comes to purchasing a house. And the article assumes, uh, quoting data from Redfin, that if you have $2,500 a month to spend on housing, which may sound like a lot to many listeners, but just making that assumption, if mortgage rates are 2.75%, nationally speaking, you can afford 70% of the homes on the market. If, however, mortgage interest rates rise from 2.75% to 3.25%, just a half a point, now you can afford only 68% of the houses on the market. Now, if your housing budget in Denver is $2,500 a month, At a 2.75% interest rate, you can afford 56% of the houses on the market. And at three and a quarter, you can afford only 53%. Sacramento, Portland, and Washington, D.C. are even worse. Now, Malden states that the traditional concept of retirement is also broken. Now, this is for one reason. Yields have totally collapsed. You know this if you're a CD investor, if you're a fixed interest investor, you know that interest rates have been held to artificially low levels. And while that's certainly a boom or a temporary boom for the housing market, it certainly makes retiring very difficult. I mean, if you were a retiree over the past few decades, and I want to give you some numbers here, you were once able to take your retirement savings and simply put it in an interest-bearing vehicle and live off the interest, or maybe the interest and your Social Security. But those days are a fond yet distant memory. 
Let's just assume you retired in the 1980s, and let's assume that you had $500,000 in retirement savings. In the 80s, according to Bankrate, and I did some research, you could get CD rates on a five-year CD averaging about 9% during the decade of the 80s. Some of you may remember those days. So if you had a $500,000 nest egg, you could get $45,000 a year, and that with your Social Security may have allowed you to get along in retirement just fine. Now, in the 1990s, a five-year CD might have averaged about 6%. Pretty big decline. Now on this $500,000 retirement nest egg, instead of collecting $45,000 a year like you would have just 10 years prior, you're now going to collect $30,000 a year. And in the 2000s, 2000 to 2009, you would find that interest rates dropped again and a five-year CD might have averaged about 4%. Now on that same $500,000 nest egg, you might collect only $20,000 a year in interest. Less than half of what you would have collected 20 years prior. Now today, when you go to the bank rate website and see what five-year CDs are yielding on average, you're lucky to find 1%. That means that now on that $500,000 nest egg, you can generate income of about $5,000 or one-ninth of what you could have in the 1980s. Now, are these normal market forces driving interest rates lower? Of course not. As Mr. Malden stated when he talked about interest rates a committee decided to encourage home purchases and did so by making it cheaper to finance those purchases and at the same time, it made it more difficult to retire and get income from low-risk investments. So at the present time, you have a lot of retirees and soon-to-be retirees who are taking too much investment risk with their nest egg because they think they have no other alternative. And there are alternatives. In fact, if you're just joining me, I would invite you to get our free report this month, Bubble Watch and Surviving a Bubble Bust, because the report does contain some strategies that you can consider that may help you boost your yield without increasing investment risk significantly. However... Many, many retirees now are looking to stocks. This has created artificial demand in the stock market. So artificial money, or when one part of the system breaks, it affects every other area of the system. Now, in the last segment of today's program, I'm going to talk about stocks, and I'm going to talk about what I see as an inevitable reset. And I'll talk to you about what I think that's going to look like and what you may want to consider doing to protect yourself. And I always say no one cares as much about your money as you do. So if you've not yet downloaded the Your RLA app, just go to the App Store on your smartphone, 
Search your RLA and you can download the app for free and get all of our free resources there. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure again uh, today to have a conversation with uh, a gentleman I always like to interview, uh, Dr. A. Gary Schilling. Uh, the website uh, where you can learn more about Dr. Schilling's work is agaryschilling.com, and uh, his office number is 888-346-7444, and I'll be chatting with Gary today. Uh, about his most recent Insight newsletter, which is must-read. Um, I would encourage you to check it out. And if you'd like to learn more, again, you can visit agaryshilling.com. And I'll be glad to give that number again before the segment is over. Dr. Schilling, welcome back to the program. Oh, glad to be back, Dennis. I always have great pleasure to be with you. Well, let's jump in because uh, the economy certainly seems to have a lot of mixed signals. How would you rate the overall health presently of both the U.S. and the world economy? Well, we're obviously, uh, (laughs) well, obviously, uh, we're working toward the end of the pandemic, but a couple of points. One is, I don't think it's a immediate leap to a, a wonderful world out there. There's always this nostalgia for what was a wonderful world back then, and and I always think, hey, was it that good? <laughs> but but anyway, there's 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 that sort of feeling that somehow we get back to normal, but you know I don't know what normal ever is. But the second thing is that, uh, and I think most interesting is there are a lot of lingering effects from this pandemic. It it is um, it is really magnifying a number of things that were already at work. I mean, one very obvious one is online shopping, uh, the Amazon effect, if you will. That's been <clears throat> greatly increased by the pandemic, people people staying at home. Uh, another one is people deciding that they'd rather spend more time at home, less time commuting. And obviously, these have very distinct uh, implications for investments, for uh, capital spending, for consumer behavior. I mean, you look at the situation now where, uh, <laughs> excuse me, office buildings, uh, particularly, <coughs> ah, excuse me, particularly in high-priced areas like New York and San Francisco <coughs> are in trouble. Yeah, in fact, uh, Gary, I, I recently read that uh, I think it was HSBC Bank is eliminating 43% of its office space, um, which uh, – I think that's not an isolated incident. That's taking place, uh, you know, all across the country and all around the world. Oh yeah, and and you know, you get real estate. We we uh, a few months ago we covered this in our monthly newsletter insight. We looked at real estate. I mean, <clears throat> historically, real estate all pretty much operates together. When you have strong economy, it means there there are more jobs, uh, more more means. Uh, more need for offices. People have more money they're spending in stores. Uh, it, it works across the board, but now it's very differentiated because here you've got malls that are in big trouble, uh, bricks and mortar stores, and yet 
the online shopping is going great guns. Uh, people are abandoning apartments in expensive cities, uh, but they're moving to the suburbs and more rural uh, locations. So it's a, it's a very differentiated kind of thing. You know, Gary, I thought in your most recent Insight newsletter, um, you had some interesting comments about how demographics and aging populations are really influencing uh, the economy and economic growth. Can can you expand on that a bit for the listeners? Yeah, sure. Uh, <clears throat> there are demographic factors which are very important long term. Um, certainly birth rates. Uh, fertility rates, which are the percentage of women in the childbearing age who who have children, and you need uh, you need those women, and this is roughly between the ages of 15 and 45. You need them to produce 2.1 um, offspring uh, per woman to maintain a population. It's got to be a little greater than one because not everybody makes it makes it to adulthood. Well, now you've got situations where you're below one in places like South Korea, Japan. Japan actually has declining population. Um, and and that's true. Uh, the fertility rates are below that too in almost every country. Now, of course, if you have strong immigration, and particularly if it's immigration of people with skills, uh, that can offset it. And that's that's been one of the things historically that's worked in the US. I mean, actually, we've been importing people for 400 years when you, you wanna look at it that way, starting with the first Europeans coming here. Um, but uh, but other countries, China, for example, um, China, they had their one child per couple policy. And now they, they their labor force is actually declining and will decline for the next uh, 30 or 40 years. And, and even now that people can have more than one child, very few people are. Well, what does that mean? It means if China wants to achieve its its growth ambitions, it's got to have a lot of productivity. In other words. People have to, those still working have to produce a lot more in order to have growth. Another, another important factor of this is that when you have so many retired people, and of course that's what's happening with aging populations, uh, those still working have to produce a tremendous amount to supply themselves and the retirees. Otherwise, you get into a uh, intergenerational warfare to split an inadequate economic pie. Well, and Gary, another thing you bring up in your in your Inside newsletter, and if you happen to be just joining us today, uh, we are chatting today with Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is the publisher of Insight Newsletter. It's a terrific newsletter that uh, he publishes every month. You can learn more at www.agaryshilling.com, or you can call his office at 888-346-7444. Gary, you know, this past week I, I was uh, reading an article that uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have now proposed the uh, the wealth tax. The name of the bill escapes me now. And you write a bit about income redistribution, uh, particularly in blue states, uh, in your Insight newsletter. Uh, how is that going to impact the economy and economic growth moving ahead? Well, it's 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 obviously uh, it's it's a response right now, and of course it's a it's a key feature of the Democrats' uh, agenda. But it is a response to the fact that we've had income polarization going on. Well, the good data starts in 1966, and if you look at that data, the top 20% of the population's share of total income has increased, and the shares of the of the four uh, lower uh, quintiles have been declining. Now that doesn't 
say that that their purchasing power is declining, but their share. But what's happened recently with globalization and a lot of you know manufacturing and other high-paid jobs shifting uh, from North America and Europe to Asia is that people not only are losing share, but they're losing uh, they're losing purchasing power. And I think that's what gave way to populism. That's what got Trump elected in 2016. That's giving you the reactions of far right and extreme left parties in in Europe. Um, so it, it has it has a it has a it has a lot of a lot of implications. But um, but you know the the fact is that with this aging of population. Um, it means that you inherently have slower economic growth unless you have a lot of productivity. Now, I happen to think we are going to have uh, strong productivity growth. It's from new technologies, which are growing tremendously. They're, very, they're soaked with productivity. These things like self-driving cars and biotech and so on. But when they start from very small bases, it can take uh, years, decades, before they're big enough to move the productivity needle. But I think that will that will occur in time. Gary, you mentioned the, uh, the the growth in income and wealth and the uh, the top 20% of the population. Uh, I would be curious as to um, to, to what uh, effect or to, to what extent, rather, do you believe that Fed policy has impacted that or, or driven that uh, wealth disparity or the wealth gap? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, the, the, a lot of the money that's been created by the Fed, and that goes back to the quantitative easing after after the uh, financial crisis in 2008, uh, that money did not go into uh, capital investment and spending on goods and services. It basically went into stocks. And stocks are predominantly owned by people at, on the top. If you look at the data and the uh, Federal Reserve has what they call a survey of consumer finance, publish it every three years, and it shows very, very distinctly uh, the people on the top, uh, on the top 10% own, I think, about 20 times as much stock as the, as the bottom 50%. It's a very skewed distribution. So when you get your strong equity markets, it, it very much benefits uh, people on the top. So it, 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 it does add to that. Uh, now, is this, is this Fed policy or is it simply that we're in a deflationary era. I think it's some of both. Um, but there's no question that the Fed's abundant largesse uh, has has certainly created a lot of money. And as I say, I think much of it has gone into equities, which are owned by uh, people at the top. But of course, now, getting back to your previous question, Dennis, uh, you're having a great desire to redistribute income. And if you look at many of the programs that uh, Biden has proposed and are, are being introduced, that's in effect what they do. They redistribute income. They, they uh, provide more income for people on the bottom. Now, of course, you do have the uh, effects of the pandemic, um, and a lot of those people at the bottom were much more severely affected than those at the top. But I think they've gone uh, beyond that and used this as an opportunity to do what they've been wanting to do all along, which is redistribute income. Well, my guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is the publisher of the newsletter Insight. If you would like to learn more, I would encourage you to visit his website at www.agaryshilling.com or you can call his office at 888-346-7444. I will continue my conversation with Dr. A. Gary Schilling when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us.
I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. My guest today is Dr. A. Gary Schilling. He is a returning guest. I always enjoy my conversation with him, and I always enjoy his perspective. If you'd like to learn more about his thoughts and his perspective, uh, I would encourage you to check out his newsletter. It's called Insight. He publishes it every month. It's extremely comprehensive. You can learn more at www.agaryshilling.com, or you can call his office at 888-346-7444. And uh, Gary, given that we have uh, all this money creation going on, and uh, given that in your book that you published uh, several years ago, The Age of Deleveraging, in which you said we were going to have a, uh, a deflationary environment, uh, a couple of questions for you. One, do you think we're going to see inflation before deflation? And have you changed your thoughts on that at all? Not, not really. I mean, the, the, the guts of inflation, deflation are, I think, no more complicated than supply and demand. And right now you've got a excess globally of supply. And that's largely because with globalization, which is essentially the movement, movement of manufacturing from North America and Europe to Asia, uh, you've got these big producers, China and then other countries, they're big producers, but very lean consumers. So there's an excess saving. They produce more than they consume. It's the saving glut, uh, some people call it. And if you have excess supply, it pushes prices down. Now, of course, if we had complete protectionism, uh, that could offset it. But, you know, Biden is less, uh, is less aggressive on trade wars than than Trump was. And anyway, manufacturing is moving out of China into lower cost areas. You look at you look at uh, Vietnam, uh, their exports have increased 60 percent in the last three years. Uh, this low end manufacturing is no longer no longer economically feasible in China, but it's moving to other areas. So uh, say unless we had a complete protectionist policy in the U.S. and other Western nations, I think you have this continual excess supply situation, which puts downward pressure on prices. You know, Gary, we have, um, according to the research I've done, a $2.3 trillion operating deficit at the federal level. Uh, The Senate uh, just a week ago passed uh, their version of a $1.9 trillion stimulus package. As we're discussing this, I think it's back at the House to uh, uh, be uh, amended or accepted. Uh, You know, that by my math, that's a $4 trillion deficit. At, At what point does this have to stop, and, and how does it stop, in your view? <laughs> Boy, I, I wish I knew, Dennis. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 as long as you have this money being pumped out uh, fiscally, and that's what that's this latest $1.9 trillion um, fiscal stimulus bill does, and the Fed, you know, the Fed's buying $120 billion in securities every month. Uh, they're just pouring money into the into the system, and as long as that continues, um, I, I don't see the immediate end of this. I mean, you, you sort of say, "Hey, wait a minute, this is this is ridiculous. It can't go on, go on forever." Um, but but it, what really what really would cause a halt to this would be a rise in interest rates, um, because there's so much that is now dependent on low interest rates. All the all the borrowing. One of the things we've seen recently, which is very interesting. And we t- we called attention to this in our earlier uh, newsletters uh, is the effects of rising interest rates on on um, 
on uh, uh, tech stocks because tech stocks are really dependent on earnings way, way out there in the distant years. And of course, the idea is that they are discounted. Those big earnings, uh, what's the present value? What are they worth today? Well, you, you basically discount them back at an interest rate. And the lower the interest rate, the more the present value of those future earnings. Well, conversely, as, as interest rates rise, and they have jumped up about half a percentage point, uh, 10-year treasury bonds and uh, notes and 30-year treasury bonds in the last few months, what that means is that these uh, earnings are worth a lot less. And that's one of the key reasons that I think we've seen the sell-off in, in tech stocks recently. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, this, is, this is one thing that could cause a party uh, to come to a halt would be a rise in interest rates. Uh, the Fed does not control long-term interest rates. They, there is some spillover effect. Uh, our numbers show that if you have a, uh, if you have one percentage point increase in the federal funds rate, which is the overnight rate the Fed does control, uh, that it results in a 43.43% uh, increase in 10-year yields and a 0.25% percent increase in 30-year treasury yields. In other words, the further you get out on the on the interest rate curve from the Fed, the less the Fed has effects, but it does have some effects. But uh, at, at the moment, the Fed is committed to dumping money out there, and they basically said at least for the next couple of years, they're not going to do anything else. If they change their mind and you had a big increase in interest rates, boy, I think a lot of things would be in trouble. So, Gary, you mentioned in the first segment that uh, I think I'd ask you the question about the wealth gap and, and to what extent you thought Fed policy was responsible for that. And, and you stated that, you know, a lot of that money ends up in stocks. So given that the Fed is going to continue with this uh, rather generous policy, do you think that that means stocks are going to continue to, to, to rise? Are we going to see uh, the continuation of a bull market? Or do you think that stocks here are a little overcooked? Yeah, well, as they say in Wall Street, trees don't grow to the sky. Um, I, I think the the risk that the stocks are just so overpriced and we're seeing so many signs of speculation, which are very typical at the peak of of uh, stock market and speculative booms. You look at the rush into to, to Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, the uh, uh, all, all the uh, futures kinds of activity, options, uh, uh, all these various speculative climates. Uh, speculative vehicles—they're uh, very typical of the of the end of a cycle when speculation has gotten to the point that it's totally divorced from reality. And why are people buying this or that or the other thing? Well, because it's going up. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you look at uh, you look at GameStop, um, where people literally—I mean, that, that that was that was a game, and you know the stock has had a lot of gyrations, but you brought in a lot of very uh, green new investors who thought they were going to beat the pros. Well, I think some of them got their heads handed to them in their attempts. But when you see that kind of speculation, um, you can see things fall of their own weight. That's what happened with the dot-com blow-off in 2000. You had that big run-up in, you know, Socks the Puppet and all the dot-com stocks. And then that basically collapsed of its own weight. It just got so overdone uh, that it pulled. And, and when it starts down, of course, it unwinds. Uh, because uh, debts mount, uh, margin, uh, margins are, are called, uh, uh, margin loans are called, and the whole thing uh, cascades down very rapidly. 
You know, I ask all my guests uh, what their opinion is of Bitcoin and Ethereum and other cryptocurrencies. I would love to hear your opinion. <laughs> well, um, I, I think I think they're giant Ponzi schemes. Uh, uh, I, I just don't see. I'm very wary of anything where there is not full disclosure, and there certainly isn't there. Bitcoin, you know, there's supposedly a limit on how many can be issued, but the guy who issued them is uh, it goes by a pseudonym. Um, it's very hidden in mystery, and um, and and you know I, I think all of these things and there's no there's no legitimate use for these things. I mean they they you know they, they're too volatile to be used uh, uh, as a medium of exchange for buying things day to day uh, or for investment purposes, a store of value, all the normal uses of currency. Um, and 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 so I think you've got a highly speculative kind of climate, um, which really feeds on itself. And um, I, I rather suspect that we are going to see a, a a big collapse in these cryptocurrencies at some point. But they could go much higher in the meanwhile. I mean, you know, the sky's the limit because the thing about speculations is they feed on themselves. They usually start off with some degree of reality, but then uh, the you know it's, it's mentioned earlier. You know, why you buy it? Because it's going up. Uh, I'm, I'm joining the crowd, uh, but, but I do think there's a tremendous vulnerability in those cryptocurrencies. So, Gary, if someone's listening to this now and they have money in a 401k, they have money in an IRA, they have dreams of a comfortable retirement, uh, and they don't know what to do with their money given the, the, the crazy environment in which we live, uh, what kind of advice are you giving to your, uh, your clients and your uh, insight readers these days? Yeah, well, we we do manage money, and and uh, we we are uh, uh, we have first of all we have a lot of cash. We have more cash than we probably ever had in our accounts. Uh, I think the volatility, what's going on there. Um, we have had good success recently, um, actually indirectly being short, uh, uh, being short tech stocks, which have have fallen considerably, and that's worked out well for us. Uh, we've got a modest position in long treasuries. I think if things really get tough, they, as usual, benefit as a safe haven. And, of course, low inflation, if not deflation, benefits them and the dollar. Um, we think the U.S. dollar has been over over beaten up. And, again, that's a safe haven. That's where people go uh, when when things are tough. So those are the kinds of things that we're interested in. And, uh, Gary, are there any sectors of the economy moving ahead uh, this is probably our last question. Any sectors of the economy moving ahead that that you like? Are there any areas of stocks that you say, "Hey, this looks pretty good to me"? Are you just saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm just going to stay in cash and we're going to let the dust settle"? Well, one one area that I think is going to be very very important. We've talked about this for years. You might recall, Dennis, is infrastructure spending. Uh, we certainly need it in this country: roads, bridges, railroads, what have you, and and it's been sadly neglected. Um, there was a concern earlier, and the reason it didn't get done is because Democrats and Republicans were fighting over how you're going to pay for it. But now with this modern monetary theory that we talked about earlier, this idea that deficits don't matter, um, I think all the restraints have disappeared. And, of course, it's a way that uh, it creates economic activity. Now, it doesn't happen immediately. Uh, we saw that in the 09 big fiscal stimulus bill and those so-called shovel-ready projects, well, it turned out 
that they hadn't even made the shovels and they probably were going to invade China. Uh, <laughs> it, takes, it takes time because the federal government can allocate the money, but it's spent by the states. And they have to go through all the environmental impact statements and draw out the uh, specs for a new road or whatever. Uh, three years later, only 30% of that money had been spent. Uh, so, But I think this is probably going to be a, a big push uh, in, in future years. Uh, maybe maybe have some of the effects of of uh, the effects of the interstate highway program, uh, which in in the uh, you know fifties and sixties was a huge boost to the economy. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Dr. A. Gary Schilling. I would encourage you to check out his newsletter titled Insight. You can learn more at agaryshilling.com or call his office at eight 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 three four six seven four four four. And, Gary, always a pleasure to chat with you, and i uh, love to have you back again down the road. I uh, look forward to it, Dennis. Thank you. We will return after these words. This is RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and your host... Glad you're listening in today, and thanks again to Dr. A. Gary Schilling for joining me on today's program. You know, in the first segment, uh, I talked a bit about how low interest rates are really making it very difficult for people to retire comfortably using safe investment vehicles. And this whole environment is also, I believe, creating an artificial demand for stocks. And what I want to talk about in this segment is really the answer to a question. And I think it's a really important question, and it is simply this. How will these artificial markets return to reality, and how will you be affected? It's a really important question to consider. Now, if you're just tuning in, during the first segment, I gave the example of someone that retired with a $500,000 retirement nest egg. And had you done that in the 1980s, you could go put your $500,000 nest egg into a five-year CD and collect about $45,000 a year in interest income, which, with your Social Security income, might have provided you a very comfortable retirement. If you turn the clock ahead 10 years and look at the decade of the 1990s, the average yield on a five-year CD would have dropped to about 6%. Now that same $500,000 nest egg would have given you only $30,000 in annual income. From 2000 to 2009, about $20,000 in annual income, or less than half what you would have gotten in the 80s. And today, you'll be lucky to get $5,000 in interest income on a $500,000 investment portfolio. If you're retired and you're a safe money investor, you know that it's very, very difficult to get any yield at all. So consequently, what a lot of retirees and soon-to-be retirees do is they go buy stock because they don't think they have any other alternative. Now, stocks, I believe, are artificial. 
I believe that because the Fed has created a lot of money, as we talked about with Dr. Schilling, that finds its way into the market. But also because interest rates are so low, investors that would in any other environment be conservative are now going out and taking more investment risk than they probably would like to be simply because they don't know what else to do. Now, another factor responsible for driving stock prices higher is that many companies are loading up on debt because interest rates are artificially low and they're using the newly borrowed money to buy back the company stock. These stock buybacks are a form of financial engineering and create artificial demand for stocks and artificially increase the earnings per share of a company. I mean, when you look around at the housing market, the stock market, the interest rate market, everything seems to be artificial. Which brings me back to the question, how will these artificial markets return to reality and how will you be affected? I mean, when it comes to stock, let me give you just one example that I covered on my Monday client webinar. And incidentally, if you would like to get our headline roundup webinar that I conduct every week with clients, you can just go to the app store and download the app and you can listen to this 30 minute headline roundup at your convenience. Now I'm just using this particular stock as an example. Coca-Cola had its earnings peak in 2010, more than a decade ago. At that time, the company earned $2.53 a share and had $14 billion in long-term debt. Now, Coca-Cola last year earned $1.79 per share. That's a decline of 30% from 2010. And over that same time period, its long-term debt has nearly tripled to $40 billion. So revenue is down, earnings are down, free cash flow is down, and debt is up. Now, a rational person would look at that data and say the stock price should be lower. But it's not. Coke's stock has more than doubled, and it's not too far from its all-time high. Does that make sense? Of course not. Yet, it exemplifies the sorts of risks that stock market investors have to take today simply because, as I noted earlier, there is no alternative. Now, if interest rates were at normal levels, do you think a otherwise sane investor would pay record high prices for a declining business? Of course not, but people think they have no alternative. Now, I'm offering a free report this month called Bubble Watch and Surviving a Bubble Bust. If you'd like to get a copy of it, all you have to do is visit requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. I'll be glad to send you a copy of that report out. It talks about the bubbles that have been created in all these artificial markets and gives you some strategies to consider for your own personal financial situation when these bubbles inevitably bust. We don't know when, but bubbles inevitably bust. Now, if 
you're also just joining me, um, I would encourage you to go to our website. That is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. There's lots of educational resources there. Uh, I mentioned the app also. Just go to the App Store and uh, search for your RLA. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. And uh, you can download the app and get access to our weekly newsletter, the weekly headline roundup webinar, as well as the podcast version of this radio program. Next week, I will be joined on the program by Brian London, who hosts the largest investment conference in the world, the New Orleans Investment Conference. I'll get his take on what's going on in the markets as well. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you have a great week. We'll talk again next week. 